seated. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up chapter 5 today, God willing. And one of the things that I pointed out is as we've been going through Galatians, we have seen Paul attempting to combat the evil work that the Judaizers have done. One of the things, of course, that they attempted to do was to appeal to the idea that if men would simply live by the law and do the works of the law, particularly uh, all of those things that the rabbis had set forth hedging in the law, uh, that they would be uh, good people in the absolute and moral sense. Uh, But Paul has pointed out that unless the heart is changed through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that goodness is impossible. And it is not the case that we begin by faith and continue on in works. He has pointed out that works will flow from a lively, a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the new birth. But it is not those works that save us. Our justification is entirely dependent upon faith in Christ alone. But now he's talking about the things that come from the natural man and the sarks, the flesh, uh, that he has spoken about the evil deeds that uh, unfortunately attend our fallen nature. But now he turns to the happier subject of the good deeds that come from our renewed nature when we become Christians, when we have the spirit living within us. The works of the spirit or the fruits of the spirit, more properly speaking, that come uh, to the Christian because of the change that's happened in them. But before we read about those fruits of the spirit, let us turn our attention now to the, uh, the Lord of the word and let's ask him to bless our time reading. God, our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand and apply your word in our lives. I pray that you would help me to open it up and exposit it truly. Lord, unless I have your spirit dwelling within me, how on earth can I hope to divide the word aright? I'm a sinful man. I am a descendant of Adam. But I ask, Lord, that by your grace, you would remind me that I'm a new creation in Christ and that you would give me the power to preach in his name to tell your people your word and to teach your little ones, your flock, the way that they should go. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading 16, uh, verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which... I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Envying one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
When we bought our first house, my wife and I, many years ago, <clears throat> which curiously is still the same house we live in, uh, I was able to finally execute on a plan, and I tell you no lie, I had had for many, many years, and that was to plant fruit trees in my backyard. Because you see, for, for ages I had visions of my backyard becoming a veritable garden of Eden. I imagined a day when in the, uh, in the coolness of the day I would be able to go out into my back garden and simply put forth my hand and have succulent fruit drop into it and then enjoy the lusciousness of that fruit and think to myself, God is good. And he has done good to me and be able to praise his name. So I had that vision in my head. And accordingly, as soon as we had stopped the backyard from being an interconnected series of fire ant mounds and something that looked more fit for a four-wheeler track than actually a backyard, uh, I planted two cherry tree saplings. And these were healthy, vibrant plants at the nursery when I selected them. <laughs> but... As soon as I put them in the ground, a miraculous change began. They began to look witheredy, and they got rust, and they definitely looked sickly. And year after year, these things barely grew at all. My wife can tell you that we essentially had bonsai cherry trees that just never did anything. And never once, never once did they bring forth fruit at all. But I was not to be deterred from my vision so easily. So what did I do? I went out and I bought grapes. I even bought the grapes. I don't even particularly like muscadine grapes, I have to tell you. I bought them, though, because I figured they're native to the area. They have to grow in Carolina soil. It's almost required, right? Carolina grapes, Carolina soil. So I planted them. We had a wire fence, and I figured it would form the perfect trellis for the grapes to move up and so on. And again, hardly any growth, never any fruit, and then they died entirely. And one day, one of the cherry trees was knocked down in a soccer game. And then another one, I accidentally ran over with the riding lawnmower. And I didn't care. I really did not care because these things were utterly useless. They did me no good whatsoever. They just were inconvenient to my life. I discovered, to my chagrin, the hard way that most, well, you can blow, grow weeds with no problems whatsoever in my backyard. I guarantee you that. But, most worthwhile plants won't grow there. And uh, that I had also made the mistake of planting the trees and the grapes in the worst section of them all. I call it the zone of death on the right-hand side of the yard. Bad soil, no growth, no fruit. And I, I must tell you, I did not plant those trees in order to harvest firewood or kindling or something later on. I did not plant them to provide shade, although the garden desperately needs shade, or even to make the yard more challenging to mow, which they certainly did. I wanted something. I wanted fruit. I wanted what they would produce. I didn't just want to have gone through the cost of putting them in the ground, but it didn't pan out. And I point that out specifically, not so that you'll feel sorry for me, and send me fruit or something like that. I point that out because again and again in scripture, God used a similar image to describe his relationship with his people and his desire for his people. He describes himself as a gardener. He describes himself as a vineyard owner and his people as the vines or the trees that he planted. 
And he says that he planted them, that he put them in their particular place, or he called them to himself. He caused them to spring up because he wanted fruit. And when his plants fail to produce fruit, when he goes to them and he finds no fruit upon them, it is a very serious issue. Jesus, you will remember, uses this image more than once in his parables. But it's not something that originally we, we see in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. When the prophet Isaiah is writing about God's work amongst his people in Isaiah 5.1, he writes these words. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. And also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. Now, incidentally, wild grapes, are, they're bitter. You can't use them for making wine. They're no good for anything. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then? When I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. There the Lord, through his servant Isaiah, is setting out what happened with Israel. I brought you into the promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey. You were like a vine, and I planted you in the choicest place. I didn't stick you in Andy's zone of death. I put you in a place where life should have been possible, and yet you did not grow and when I came to you seeking the fruit of good works, the fruit of worship, the peaceable fruits of the Spirit, I found none. I found only oppression. I found faithlessness towards me and oppression towards other people. Evil in both directions. Evil vertically and evil horizontally. And of course, Jesus speaks of his own ministry. He speaks about how he came to earth seeking Fruit. That was his desire that the, the children of Israel, when the Messiah who had long been promised finally visited them, that he would find a fruitful people. But again, in Luke 13, 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he, that is the gardener, Answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. You see, the Lord desires that we would be fruit bearers. Our salvation was not merely so that we would be saved, but so that we would do those good works that the Lord had planned out for us. That we would be his witnesses in the earth, that we would be his people bearing fruit to his name, that we would be vines or fig trees or whatever fruitful analogy you want to use, but that we would bear these things. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus points out again and again to us 
that it is not our nature to bear fruit naturally, uh, to bear good fruit, that is. We may bear wild uh, grapes in our natural state, but we're not going to bear good fruit. Like the blighted area of my garden, we are not good soil because of our fallen nature. And you remember, he has this parable of the soils in which he talks about how the seed is good. A sower went out to sow and he sows seed, but it falls into different kinds of soil. And most of the soil that it falls in is either hard or rocky or choked with weeds and it produces none of the fruit that he's looking for. But in each case, the sower is looking for a harvest. And that's what the Lord is looking for in us. But in order for that to happen, he has to do a work of reclamation upon us, a work of change. Uh, Thomas Boston, who was actually one of the leaders of the uh, Associate Presbytery, which was the Scottish uh, secession presbytery that formed the heart of the ARP, the denomination that we are part of. He wrote once in his Human Nature in its Fourfold State, and I would, I would highly recommend this book to you. It is, uh, it is incredibly edifying. But he wrote this, Our natural stock is a dead stock, according to the threatening from Genesis 2.17. And the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Our root is now rottenness. No wonder the blossom goes up as dust. The stroke has gone to the heart. The sap is let out. And the tree is withered. The curse of the first covenant, like a hot thunderbolt from heaven, has lighted on it and ruined it. It is cursed now as that fig tree in Matthew 21, 19. Let no fruit grow on you henceforward forever. Now it is a good thing, but to cumber the ground and furnish fuel for Tophet. Let me enlarge a little here also. Every unrenewed man is a bunch or a branch of a dead stalk. When you see, O sinner... A dead stalk of a tree, exhausted of all its sap, having branches on it in the same condition, look on it as a lively representation of your soul's state. That is what we are. We're dead, sapless, incapable of uh, providing fruit for the Lord outside of Christ. That's why Jesus used that parable of the sower to talk about the kind of soil that would produce the fruit that was necessary. But more importantly, he said that he would be the one who made it possible for us to produce fruit. He really did. Look with me in John, and specifically in John 15. I want to start reading in John 15, 4. There Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples." If we're in Christ, we're in the true vine. We are truly branches and we will have that sap, that life-giving sap that not only vivifies us, produces life in us, but allows us to bear that fruit that glorifies the Father. The sap, of course, though, is, is not the natural stuff that you find in plants. It is the Holy Spirit. And outside of Jesus, we don't have the Holy Spirit. We must be in Christ in order to have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, producing the the power to produce good fruit. Now, Paul has been warning, as I said in the introduction, that uh, that the Galatians are in danger of thinking that mere moralism, 
merely attempting to keep the law in their natural state will produce the fruit of the Spirit, that it will produce good works for God. But he has told them that it's not by the works of the law that this fruit grows, but through faith. Now, we know that men may be able to fake the fruits of the Spirit, as you are able to outwardly fake a fruit itself. I used to go to, I hated department stores when I was a kid. Okay, um, when I was a child, going shopping with my mother was, was the thing that I most hated. I would do things like, they used to have these circular racks. I don't know if they still have circular racks in department stores, but I would immediately hide in the middle, and then when somebody came to look at them, I would suddenly push the thing, and they would go, ah! you know. And then I, my mother would come looking for me, and a very naughty boy. But I remember that in one department store, they had this, what looked like this luscious, tray of fruit on display. And one day, while my mom wasn't looking, I just reached up and I grabbed, I loved oranges, I just grabbed one. And I was like, it was fake. I had been dreaming about that particular orange for for quite some time that day. And when I finally got it, it turned out to be a fake fruit. No good to anybody, certainly no good to me. Well, we can attempt to produce fake fruit in our lives, to mimic the fruits of the Spirit. Um, Paul Tripp, in his, his series on child raising, points out that parents attempt uh, all the time to, to mimic fruit in the lives of their kids. How do they do this? Well, he gives an image uh, from his own garden experience. Apparently, he had a tree like, like my cherry trees. It would never, ever produce anything good, no good fruit. It only produced these, these wormy, uh, crabby, uh, rotten apples, and he had been hoping for good apples, but it never did produce that, and his wife was always saying to him, when are you going to get rid of that tree that's cumbering the ground of our yard? It's good for nothing, and so on. Well, one day, he says he went out to the market, and he bought a bushel full of just the most succulent apples that he could find, and then he got fishing line, and he, uh, that night, he hung the apples on the tree, and so... Being the, uh, the prankster type, in the morning, he looked out the, uh, the kitchen window and he said, Honey, honey, you're not going to believe this. Look, it finally sprouted. And she's like, oh, what did you do? And he's like, well, I'm just that good. And then he said, no, I, I, I hung apples on the tree. Well, the problem is we try to do exactly the same thing with our kids. We try to produce change from the outside in to clean them up. We, we try to hang the produce on them. Be nice. Say sorry. Don't do that, you know. It's always the... Eh. We're trying desperately to mold their behavior, but from the outside in with the stick, or perhaps with the carrot. If you're good, I'll take you to X thing you really want. Uh, okay. Not my desire to do the good thing, but it is my desire to get the thing that you're offering me, so I'll do it. And so we follow a stick and carrot means of child rearing, and what happens? Well, we get kids who will do things to get the carrots and do things to avoid the stick, but that's not the change that Christ is looking for, and it doesn't produce real fruit. And as soon as they're out from their parents' houses, generally speaking, they go on the broad path that leads to destruction. Unless they have that inner principle, that desire to do that which is right, to bear good fruit because Christ is in them and they have that life-giving sap, we won't see a change. 
Jesus makes this very clear. I'm so sorry, but he, he does. In Matthew 7, 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And then he warns. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. The tree has to be made good. And the only way that it can be made good is through the Holy Spirit within us. What then are these fruits that the Lord is looking for? What is it that, uh, that the Spirit produces within us? What do we bear as Christians? Well, we're not left in the dark about that, are we? In, in chapter 5 here, in verses 22 uh, and 23, we are told specifically what they are. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And of course, I could preach individual sermons on each of those fruit of the Spirit, and men have done so, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to summarize them for you and let you figure them out yourself, for the most part, by studying the Word and studying more about them. What can we say then about the fruit of the Spirit? Well, first, you need to understand these are supernatural graces. They are not things that the natural man has within him or bears naturally. They come naturally in one sense from the Spirit to us, but that's a supernatural work of God. If we are truly going to bear these fruits, we need God's grace. We need his supernatural grace in us. And this is a critical idea. These gifts of the Spirit come from within us. They come from the inside out, not the outside in. They aren't reactions to things outside of us. That's critical. Now this, in this we bear the image of God. And this is, I, I hope you will understand this because it is so important for us to understand. God is not a reactionary God. Okay, that would mean God is changeable. But God says he does not change. He is immutable to use the theological word. So when God says he loves, it's not as a reaction to who we are. It's something that comes from within him. Why does he love us? Because he loves us and he desires to make us into that which he has long desired to see within us. And that's a wonderful thing because if you were to, I mean, I often say it's a miracle that I survived my childhood. I was a terrible child. There was nothing lovable within me. If my parents hadn't committed themselves to loving me from the very beginning, but had simply reacted to the things I did, I, I wouldn't have survived. And the Lord doesn't simply react to the way we are when he finds us. He rather loves us from eternity past and then makes us into the image of his son. And so it is that these things should flow out of us as we resemble God ourselves. So... The first thing that Paul mentions, of course, is love. This is the most important. And it's not just love to our fellow man. This is love to God in the vertical sense and then love to man in the horizontal sense. If we love God truly, then we will love our fellow creatures. We will love his image bearers. And this is a selfless love. This is agape love. This is a sacrificing love. This is an original love that comes from us. I don't know if you've met a true agape love Christian, the kind of person who just loves people, not because of the person, not because of the circumstances, but because he loves them. Why does he love them? Because he loves Christ and it flows out of them. A person who loves like that, you just love to be around them. They have that, that wonderful, loving kindness and tenderness and gentleness. And, and I'm mentioning those things because we see that love is the key element. That's why he speaks of it first. The other things, when it comes to other people and God, they tend to flow from this. 
This is not, of course, the love of relations, the love of friends, the love of lovers. Take a look when you can at Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27 and then going through. He talks about the way that the Gentiles, the people outside of the covenant community, the way they love. And he mentions that to love those who love us, what credit is that to us? If we love our parents, if we love our brothers, if we love the people who do nice things to us, we're just acting in the same way that the sinners do. Who does he tell us to love? He tells us to love those people whom it is hardest to love. He says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High. So the desire to get back stuff from people who we're nice to. And that's why we're nice to them. Why am I nice to you? Well, I'm hoping you'll be nice to me. Unfortunately, uh, one of the things that I learned very quickly is that sometimes within the Christian community, people keep score. And they have a what have you done for me lately counter in, in their mind. Well, I could do nice things to you, but I've done 13 nice things and you haven't done one nice thing back. Buddy, I'm going to give you time to, you know, bring your score up before I do something nice for you. But that's not how it works with the Christian. If we had had to do something good for Christ to do something good for us, none of us would have been saved. So we should do good without expecting anything in return. And then he speaks of joy. And this is not the temporary joy of I'm happy something nice happened to me. I got a good job. I was, somebody complimented me. Uh, I was given in my Christmas bonus and things like that. A reactionary joy. This is the joy that comes from having the Holy Spirit within you. And simply being animated by a love to Christ and a looking forward to what's to come. And just joy at your salvation. You should be happy you're saved. I mean, if you were drowning in a lake, somebody jumped in to save you, pulled you to shore. Perhaps you'd stop breathing. They resuscitated you. Would you, you know, come to your station and then think, oh, what a day. Get away from me. Were you kissing me? Get get, get off. That kind of, you know, and then be crabby for the rest of the day. I hope you would rather be, thank you so much. I was drowning, but you jumped in. You saved me. Oh, you're the best, honestly. And be joyful that you've been rescued. When something seems to be going wrong and everything turns around, doesn't that produce joy in your heart? You think you're going to be T-boned, but happily the person stops just short of your car. And after you get over being absolutely terrified, you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And you're full of joy. Well, how much more should that be the case for us then? We were headed to hell. Not just for a little, not, it's not a case of our car being T-boned or us inhaling the lake. It's we were saved from eternal torment. We were saved from a fate literally worse than death. Should we not be joyful that we've been brought into the kingdom and been given the principle of love to the Father within us? We're reminded in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It should be the case that we are overjoyed and that it's not merely a bottle of port that makes us happy, 
but rather that we can be happy wherever we are because we have the Holy Spirit within us. This is a rejoicing that can happen in jail. When Paul writes his rejoicing letter to the Philippians, that's where he's writing it from. He's writing it from a jail, but he sees beyond the walls of the jail to the joy that he will experience when he enters into the presence of the Lord. Indeed, the joy that he already has in serving the Lord, in knowing his presence within him. He has that joy, 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 joy deep in his heart, deep in his heart, etc. You should have that too. If you're a joyless Christian, something is wrong. That's a fruit that we should be bearing in our lives. Then he speaks, moving on, of peace. And this is peace with God and man. This is the inner peace that we have, even in the midst of the storm. That the world can be boiling around us, and yet we're still at peace. Because we know that we have Christ with us. That's one of the reasons why Jesus rebuked the apostles, didn't he? When they were in the storm on the Sea of Galilee and they thought the boat was going to sink and they thought that they were lost. And Jesus said, why are you so fearful? Don't you have faith? Because if they had really believed, they knew that nothing could, nothing could affect them. Nothing could tear them away from God if they had Jesus with them. He said, my peace, his peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When we are discontented, when we have no peace, so often we look for peace in the world. When we're afraid, we go to other people to make us feel better. We're like little children. There's a monster under the bed. Who do we go to? You know, very few children. I mean, one, it's wonderful if they do. Very few children at that point say, I will not be afraid for I know that the Lord is with me. What do they say instead? Daddy! Daddy! There's a monster under the bed. You have to do the check. You gotta... You do the check. Are you sure? Did you check the court? That kind of thing. But how often do we do the same thing? There's a monster under the bed. Could you check it for me? There's no monster under your bed. Check, just check. You know, that kind of thing. We want assurance from people. We want help from people. We want people to make us feel better. But even if they make us feel better, it's like your parents, they check the bed, but then you were sure that the monster came back as soon as they left. (laughs) Only Christ can be with you everywhere. Note that. Then there's long-suffering, <laughs> patience. This is a fruit I'm working on, um, <laughs> trying to manifest it. Uh, this is the ability to long-endure suffering, persecution, foolishness around you. Uh, it is the kind of patience that allows the Christian to endure where the non-believer can't. Some of the most amazing things that I've seen, and it wouldn't seem like much to the world, is I've seen Christians patiently enduring in the midst of suffering, particularly going through chronic illnesses, things where they're in pain all the time, cancer, for instance. I've seen people who are dying of cancer, who are in constant pain. And while they don't enjoy the pain and the experience, they have the patience to endure. They are able to suffer in the midst of it and not give up hope, not lose touch with everything, not become bitter because they know that the Lord is with them and that once they are brought through this experience where they know it will not last forever, that glory awaits them. 
We can be patient when we know something better is coming. Well, you who are Christians know something is better, that something better is coming, <laughs> that it will happen. It may be raining today, but the sun is coming out tomorrow, and it's not the Annie song I'm speaking about. There's a day coming when Christ will return for all who are his. Things will be put right. And if you die before he comes, then you will enter into his presence and you will know his glory. And then we're told about kindness. And that is to be gentle with those who are difficult, to be good to them. We're told also that the Christian will have that spirit of goodness within them. Are you good to others? And I mean not good when it's easy to be good. Not good when it's the person who's really likable. Not good when you're being nice to the person who's part of your clique. But are you good to those who you can obtain, you think, nothing from? And you'll be surprised, actually, the way the, the Lord works. It's often the people who you thought that you would you know, get nothing from who end up giving you the most. I've told you the, uh, the, the story of the, the pastor who visited the widow thinking that, well, you know, I'll do her a good deed. I don't expect much. It'll be, a, you know, one of those things that I put on my schedule. I do my good deed. She benefits and I go away. And then he entered into her house and found that she was the, uh, she was the great keeper of a Puritan library. And she was able to, through the years, educate him as to spiritual truths that he knew nothing of. And she was the one who ended up doing good in his life. Then there's faithfulness, and this is faithfulness to God and man. It is the opposite in one sense of heresies, but it is also being true to those around you. A Christian is a true man. Is your word your bond? When you tell somebody you're going to do something, do you do it? When you tell somebody this is the truth, is that the truth? Are you faithful to your wife? Are you faithful to the promises that you make to those who have no power whatsoever to see them done in your life, which is often our children? When we promise something, do we keep our promise? Are we faithful? Are we faithful to the covenant vows that we take? Or do we rank our vows? One of the bizarre things that I encountered since I came to, to uh, Fort Bragg was watching Christian men rank their vows. What do I mean by that? Well, first at the very top is the vow that I take to uphold and defend the U.S. Constitution, okay? I noted that to break that vow would be treason. I'll never do that. Then considerably beneath that is the vows that I took to my wife to love her, to keep her, to be faithful to her, to, you know, all that stuff. It's a lot lower. Then way, way down the list are the vows that I took to my church. Very bottom. Those, hey, I'll keep them if the sun is shining and everything's fine and I didn't find out about a better church that just started up down the road. We do that. We rank our vows. That's not faithfulness. If we make a vow, then we're supposed to keep it. And that's something that God allows us to do. We become faithful, trustworthy people. That should mark us out. And of course, there's gentleness. The man who's not easily moved or provoked to anger. You should not be a crabby Christian. You should not be a Christian who immediately responds in anger and bitterness. Uh, we are blessed that we don't serve a crabby God who immediately strikes us as the Greek gods, the fake Greek gods struck their followers. And lastly, he lists self-control, temperance. Are you in control of yourself? Are you in control of your vices and your habits? 
Can you stop yourself when you are tempted to do something that will give you a brief counterfeit pleasure or joy? We need that. Temperance, incidentally, brothers and sisters, self-control is something that's exercised when there's nobody watching you. Are you trustworthy by yourself? Can you control yourself when you could get away with it, you think? Incidentally, nobody ever gets away with anything. There's one who always sees, and he's with you at all times. Well, Paul sums up by saying, against all these things, there is no law. And Paul's real meaning here is a a lot less obvious than it seems. It says, he's saying, where the spirit reigns, the law no longer has any dominion within us. It's not that the law molds our hearts to do what God wants us to, but that we have an inner principle within us. We're no longer afraid of the severity of the law because we know that it has been disarmed. Now, when somebody who doesn't have this principle knows that there's no law over them, that nothing can happen to them if they break the law, then they happily break the law. That's one of the problems that we see within our nation. We've taken away, for the most part, unfortunately, the preaching of the gospel. And we've taken away, therefore, the very principle that modifies hearts and causes men to love God and causes them to change And what was our backup plan? Our backup plan was we would have the law to come down on them. But increasingly, there are no laws to come down on them. We have all of these DAs who refuse to prosecute and things like that. And so there's no law and there's nothing restraining them within. So what do they do? Whatever they want to. Whatever sinful desire they have. But that should not be us. That is never the Christian because we act according to the inner principles, the change that has happened. We who are Christ have crucified, Paul says, the flesh with its passions and its desires. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And therefore, we live by faith, not by fear of the law. Well, brothers, let us remember what he said. If we don't have this principle within us, we will become conceited. We saw that in the Pharisees because we'll be attempting to outdo one another in our law-keeping in our outward conformity. And the Pharisees, they were very big on the outward signs. But you and I, we should be humble people who are stressing humility rather than legalism. And we should be seeking to glorify God in everything that we do. And if we have this fruit, it will endure. I will close with this particular reminder. In Psalm 1, the psalmist speaks about the man who has... God's spirit within him and his desires and the change that's occurred with him. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its seasons, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The Christian man who has the spirit dwelling within him bears those fruits, and they continue to bear. Fruit trees, even the best of them, only bear during certain seasons. But the Christian continues bearing fruit all year long to the glory of God. And I hope that's you. I hope you are a fruit bearer, that you have the gifts of the spirit, that you're manifesting them in your life. But if not, well, that's a sign that you have not yet been born again. That the tree's still bad, the, the ground's still wrong. But if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be given the power to bear fruit. If you have Christ in you, 
the hope of glory, then you will also have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and bearing fruit through you. This happens because the Lord does an amazing, changing work within us, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, and giving us his Holy Spirit. And anyone who comes to him, this is the amazing thing, it's a sign that he's already begun that work within us, regenerating us. So let's go before the Lord and let's ask him to do his wonderful work in our hearts. God, our Father, we desire to be good ground. We desire to bear fruit to your name, to produce an abundant harvest, but we know that we can't do that without your life-changing work within us. We don't merely wish to hang fruit on ourselves that looks good, but is really just for show. We want to have an inner abiding principle that causes us to make the right choices, that causes us to love you and to love our fellow man. So therefore, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, we ask that you would put that spirit within us. And therefore, allow us to bear the gifts of the Spirit, not just to do so for a day, but for our entire lives, and then on into eternity. Would you do that, Lord? Would you please bless us in that way? And help us now to walk by faith and not by sight, to not fear those things, and to seek solace amongst people. But rather, O Lord, to fear nothing, because we know that you're with us. And that you will always be our strong tower, our refuge, our deliverer, and that you will never let go of us.